Well, good morning. Welcome to Fellowship. Welcome to our time of gathered worship as the community of Fellowship Church. This morning, we join with the saints and angels around the throne, our brothers and sisters around the world, and those who have gone before us in joining in the stream of ongoing worship of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 104, and I invite you to say these words with me. They'll be on the screen. There's a one all. You will be the all in orange. Let's uh, center ourselves in the goodness of who God is. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You, O Lord, wrap yourself in light as with a garment. Stretch out the heavens like a tent. You set the earth on its foundations, and it can never be moved. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. Would you stand and let's sing together?
This season during our Casting Shadows worship series, we have been doing something called long shadow prayers, which is borrowing prayers from those who have cast a long shadow in our faith. This morning, our prayer comes from Julian of Norwich. If you are not familiar with who she is, she is basically only known to us through the spiritual classic she wrote called Revelations of Divine Love. She was a sophisticated theologian and devoted follower of Jesus, and her book is the first work in the English language that we can know for sure was written by a woman. The prayer we have selected um, from her is brief, so I'm going to pray it aloud twice with space in between for silence and reflection. Would you join me in your hearts together and let's savor these words and images as we offer ourselves to God in Christ. In you, Father Almighty, we have our preservation and our bliss. In you, Christ, we have our restoring and our saving. You are our mother, brother, and savior. In you, our Lord, the Holy Spirit, is marvelous and plenteous grace. You are our clothing. For love, you wrap us and embrace us. You are our maker, our lover, our keeper. Teach us to believe that by your grace, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, and we shall see it. In you, Father Almighty, we have our preservation and our bliss. In you, Christ, we have our restoring and our saving. You are our mother, brother, and savior. In you, our Lord, the Holy Spirit, is marvelous and plenteous grace. You are our clothing. For love, you wrap us and embrace us. You are our maker, our lover, our keeper. Teach us to believe that by your grace, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, and we shall see it. Amen. Friends, in a world that is desperately in need of peace, especially with everything going on in the Middle East, It is the good news that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that we have peace with God and with one another. The peace of Christ be with you, friends. I invite you, as you are able, to stand and share a sign of that peace with your neighbor. Good morning, Fellowship Church. 
my name is Nate Skipper, and I am one of the pastors here, and we would like to say welcome to you if you are visiting. Well, I guess I'll welcome everyone, but especially if you are visiting with us this morning, we're glad to have you. If you'd like to make yourself known to us, we do have connection cards both available online and also at the back of the sanctuary. Our mission as a congregation is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. It's supposed to be driving everything that we do. But how do we do that? How do we live out this mission? Sometimes around here we use three words, uh, belonging, growing, and serving. I can tell you all about why we chose those words, but for this morning, I just want to highlight an announcement for each one of them. Belonging, when I think of belonging, one of the best metaphors for belonging might be something like an orchestra where everybody gets to play and use the gifts that they have and the instruments that they can play, and it makes a beautiful sound. So uh, one way in which you can belong is by being in the orchestra. On October 29, all ages and skills are welcome. Even my daughter might even play uh, as a first-year violinist. Uh, So uh, join the orchestra on October 29. There'll be a rehearsal on Wednesday. You can also uh, belong by coming to our Fall Fest. It's in the bulletin, but there's no date. It's the last Wednesday in October. October 25, I believe, uh, is the date. Uh, It's not in there, but uh, just figure on the last Wednesday as a way to belong. Growing. How do we grow as followers of Jesus, as faithful followers of Jesus, like our mission statement says? One way in which we can do that is by giving of ourselves uh, and giving of our tithes and offerings, acknowledging that all that we have is ultimately a gift from God. This week, we are going to be highlighting how we can give and be good stewards of our money. There's an announcement about that in the bulletin as well. In our financial flourishing class, I really want to highlight it this week because um, we'll have Patrick Sisler from the Community Foundation here to help us understand how we can be both good stewards and be generous uh, with tax-wise giving, making sure that, we're, uh, that it's a good way to be stewards uh, to, to relieve our tax burden while also being generous. So if you'd like to learn more about what that could mean for you and your family, I invite you to come on Wednesday night as a way to grow. Finally, serving. What a cool opportunity we as a church have to be in service to our community, and you know no better way to do that than some of the primary way, or some of the primary ways fellowship does that is through two local ministries, Kids Hope and Hand to Hand. You're going to hear more about Kids Hope at the end of the service, but Hand to Hand started this past week. I got some pictures here for you uh, from folks delivering meals uh, to both Pine Creek and Lakewood Elementary. It's a process. Some people pack, some people deliver, and some people lug all of the meals to the lockers. Did you know that this year we are serving 210 kids? Uh, This is up from 150 last year. So we're going to be packing so many meals. We recognize that whatever we're going through economically has been challenging for a number of families. Uh, And so we uh, are are providing 210 families uh, with weekend supplemental food. If you want to learn more about hand-to-hand, there's a little table right in the back that you can check out and learn about hand-to-hand. And this week only, you can help us uh, help them by packing snack packs after the service. We're hoping to pack 1,000 snack packs that'll get us through about a month. Uh, You can grab a little baggie and then a few uh, food items out in the gathering place after the worship service. We'd love to have you uh, jump into service in that really small, simple way. These are just a few of the ways in which we belong, grow, and serve at Fellowship Church. In just a moment, the kids are going to be dismissed uh, to Sunday school, but before they leave, we're going to sing a blessing over them uh, for those that are kindergarten through third grade. So uh, join us in this song of blessing, and as the song wraps up, the kids are dismissed to their Sunday school classrooms.
Kids, you are dismissed. And friends, in the spirit of that song, I'd love to offer a little different greeting than the typical one that we share this morning. Uh, It comes to us from our story, the text of the day from a righteous man named Boaz who is interacting with his employees, his field workers. He says to them, the Lord be with you. And they say back, the Lord bless you. So let's try it. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. A little different than usual, and that exchange is already a hint for us to the kind of story that we're going to be engaging today, a story of people so honorable that you can't help but love them back. But first, more on that in a minute, we're in a series right now called Casting Shadows, where we are puddle jumping through Old Testament stories, major characters who cast long shadows, ones like Adam and Eve and Abram and Sarah Jacob and Esau, Shifra and Pua from Exodus 1, even Moses and the law. And we're finding that these characters cast long shadows and also are sometimes shadowy characters, shady ones. And we're also finding that we are a bit like them in our lives too. Today we turn our attention to the story of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth, according to the scholars, is officially classified as a short story a concise tale, a novelette, they call it. It's like other stories like Esther or Job or Jonah. And everybody loves a short story, right? Don't we all love to hear a good short story? We're story creatures. We live in a deeply storied world. And it's my conviction that most stories, especially our favorite stories, follow a rather familiar pattern It's the story of everything. And it's based on, patterned after, the best story ever told. The story of our scriptures from start to finish. And it usually unfolds in something like four scenes. Everything begins once upon a time. Once upon a time, way back in the beginning when things were pretty good, at least. And so in the Lord of the Rings, it's the hobbits in the Shire In uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, it's all is well before things turn sour. In The Wizard of Oz, it's Dorothy with her dog Toto in Kansas. In the Bible, it's the Garden of Eden. But then, of course, dun-dun-dun, things turn sour. A villain rises up or some kind of tragedy strikes. And so in Star Wars, it's Darth Vader. In Toy Story, it's being forgotten. In our daily news, it's war. In the Bible, it's sin. Things get really dark until a hero rises up to make right whatever is wrong, to do what seems to be impossible. In Top Gun, it's Maverick getting into the airplane. In Madame Secretary, it's the president flinging her hair and taking the chair. In The Last of the Mohicans, It's a passionate lover saying, I will find you. And in the Bible, it's Jesus who takes on flesh for us and for our salvation. Eventually, finally, the problem is fixed. The great deed is done. The crisis is averted. And the people live happily ever after. In the movie Braveheart, it's freedom at last. In the Chronicles of Nardia, it's the end of winter. And in the Bible, it's God's kingdom come. That, I suspect, is a bit of a familiar storyline. We love to tell it. It's the story of everything. 
It's the story of scripture. It's my story. It's your story. And it's the story of Ruth. Once upon a time, all things were well, and then some kind of trouble strikes, and a hero rises up, and eventually they live happily ever after. It's the story of everything and the story of Ruth, and I want to consider it with you today, kind of scene by scene. The first scene is the once upon a time scene, and this is what the text tells us. It says, in the days that when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. These two sons took Moabite wives, and the names of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And so the story begins, and it's happy enough, right? There's three men, and there's three women, and so there's three couples, and life is pretty good. And as the story begins, it's the story mostly about the men. They're the ones who are named first, but that lasts a total of three verses in this story in particular. Soon the story will be mostly entirely about the women. And there's at least one particular peculiar detail that I hope you notice right away from the start. Specifically, it's the young women, Orpah and Ruth. Ruth, they're Moabites. Moabites? Now, you're maybe thinking as I say that out loud, who cares? That's not a big deal. But in the Bible, it is a big deal. It is a big deal because it means that Ruth and Orpah, they're outsiders. The story could have been named after any of the other characters in the story. It could have been named after Elimelech or Boaz or even Naomi, who actually is the main character in the story. She is the center of attention throughout. It could have been named after those other characters. They're insiders. They're Israelites. But it's not. The book is named after Ruth. And Ruth is an outsider, which is really kind of a big deal. In fact, consider it this way. I'll give you a pop quiz. How many other books in the Old Testament are named after a non-Israelite? Zero. Ruth is the only one. Pop quiz number two. How many books in the New Testament are named after an outsider, a non-Jew? One. Yes, come on. One. Luke. Luke is a Gentile, the author of his own gospel. Pop quiz number three, last one for now. Ruth isn't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible except where? Yes, in Matthew chapter one in the genealogy of Jesus. And if you have your Bible and you open up to that particular chapter, Genesis chapter one, you'll find something rather fascinating. There's 40 or 50 different people named in that genealogy of Jesus. Only five of them are women. Only one of those five women is an insider, Mary, the mother of Jesus. The other four are all outsiders. There's the story of Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. She's a Canaanite, and that story is racy to say the least. Then there's the story of Rahab, who lives in the wall of the great city of Jericho. She's a Jerichoite or Jerichoian. What do you call him? It's a person from Jericho, <laughs> okay? Then there's Ruth, 
who's from Moab. She's a Moabite. And then there's Bathsheba, who is notably the wife of Uriah the Hittite. They're all outsiders. And I want to remind you, we're studying a short story here, and most short stories have a moral to them, a moral or a lesson to the story. So, for example, in the story of the tortoise and the hare, the moral of the story is that slow and steady wins the race, right? In the story of the boy who cried wolf, the moral is that you don't call for help unless you really need it. In the story that Jesus told of two builders, The moral of that story is that a rock foundation is better than a sandy one. In the book, if the book of Ruth had a moral right out of the gates, right from the very start, it might be that God is in the business of including outsiders. God is in the business of welcoming outsiders in. And friends, if that's you, if you are one who feels a bit like an outsider to the community of faith, then Let this book help you take heart for God is in the business of welcoming even you outsiders in all of us, no matter how faithful or how shadowy our pasts have been. Of course, the story continues. Only three verses. They don't last very long. Trouble strikes pretty quickly. This is what the text says. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and both Mahlon and Chilion also died so that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. So Naomi said to her two daughters, Go back to Moab, each of you to your mother's house. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, turn back. And again they wept aloud together. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They're being redundant about that. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the dun-dun-dun part of the story. This is where tragedy strikes three times over. All three men die. All three women are widowed. And remember, we're 3,000 years removed from a positive idea of an independent woman. That doesn't exist yet. At this time and in this place, this sounds like a death sentence. Naomi, the matriarch, is deeply sad. She describes her own life as bitter. She complains, but she never curses God, which is interesting. Then three times over, Naomi instructs her daughters to go back, go back, go back, turn back, go back to Moab. And Orpah reluctantly agrees. She kisses her mother-in-law goodbye and heads back to Moab. That's normal, by the way. There's nothing wrong with that. That's normal for that time. Ruth, however, Ruth clings. And that deed is truly different. It's what the story is all about. A quiet, humble, costly, small town faithfulness. 
Now, I want to invite you to consider again Ruth in its canonical context, this small story among all the rest of the stories of Scripture. If you zoom out a little bit or if you open your Bible and pinch the story of Ruth, you'll find that it's sandwiched in between the stories of the judges and the stories of the kings. And these stories are exciting, to say the least. They are stories of big people in big towns doing big things. The stories are riveting. They are shock and awe kinds of stories. In the book of Judges, it's a cyclical pattern. It just keeps happening over and over again. My favorite is the story of Ehud, the left-handed judge. I'm a lefty. Ehud is the left-handed judge who goes to attack King Eglon of Moab. Go figure. He's described as a very fat man. This is a middle school story for sure. Middle schoolers love this story. He sneaks in there. He gets past airport security because he's left-handed and he stores his knife on the other leg. He gets in there and he thrusts it into the belly of the king who is so large that it involves, it takes over the whole blade. And the text tells us in a rather grotesque way that the blade of the knife ruptured his bowels so that the dirt came out. That's poo, by the way. Again, it's a middle school story. (laughs) The king dies, but it stinks so bad that the attendants think he's dead. So they leave the door closed and leave him alone just long enough for Ehud to escape. It's an exciting story, right? I don't know what's edifying about it. I've tried. Maybe God is providential, you could say, something like that. But it's an exciting story, and many of the stories of the judges are like that. Jump to the other side, and you'll be soon into the stories of the kings, and it's really more of the same. They are stories of epic victory and juicy scandal. David defeating Goliath. King Solomon splitting babies. Comparatively, Ruth is boring, right? Ruth is this story of a small town, almost nowheresville, where it seems like no one is noticing, no one is caring, and yet Ruth clings. Sandwiched in between these big, towering stories of the judges and the kings, exciting, 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 we find Ruth, who is unexciting, unfamous, and yet unflinching in her faithfulness. It's got me wondering about the kind of stories that we tell. If a child asked you to tell you a bedtime story, tell them a bedtime story, would you think and tell the story of Ruth? About 10 years ago, a book came out called The Secrets of a Happy Family. And in it, the author makes the claim that the single most important thing you can do for your family is to develop a strong family narrative, which is one way of saying that the stories we tell really do shape the lives that we live. In other words, we duplicate what we celebrate. We duplicate what we celebrate. And yes, the other stories are certainly more flashy. They're more exciting. Ruth only clings. But the story is worth remembering and retelling because we duplicate what we celebrate. As the story continues, a hero rises up. This is what it says. It says, now Naomi had a kinsman on her side, her husband's side, a prominent rich man of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let 
Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose sight I might find favor. And Naomi said to her, go, my daughter. And so she went. As it happened, she came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. The story continues, and in chapter 3, it's the story of Naomi's kind of midnight plan for Ruth to meet Boaz privately. After that, in chapter 4, Boaz goes on to the city gates to negotiate with Mr. So-and-so, the, uh, the other next of kin who's actually closer than he is, to negotiate with the others so that he might redeem Ruth. And you'll notice that the hero at this moment is Boaz. If he didn't rise up, Ruth would be left only clinging, and yet she would be homeless, helpless, seemingly hopeless. But in this scene, we actually find Boaz becoming quite a bit like Ruth, who has already modeled some excellent character. Boaz turns out to be a rather unexciting and yet unflinching person of character, too. Boaz acts towards Ruth in the same way that Ruth has acted towards Naomi, and a theme begins to emerge. It's the Hebrew word chesed, chesed. Hesed is an important word in the Bible, and it's one of those great words in the Bible that you can't translate into English with just one word. It's almost representing a whole different world and worldview. But most typically, the word is translated as something like loyal love or steadfast kindness or covenantal faithfulness or generous mercy or goodness, something like that. The word hesed appears three times in the book of Ruth. 247 times in the Old Testament altogether. And it just might be the most important word used to describe the character of God. It's used twice in God's own self-description, which is Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. God uses hesed twice to describe himself. According to the scholars, hesed is one, uh, an act that would count as hesed must meet three criteria. The first is that it must be a freely chosen act. It can't be an obligation, neither moral nor legal. It's freely chosen. Second, it must be other-focused. It's got to be void of selfish gain. And then third, it must be extraordinary, above and beyond, uncommonly merciful or gracious. Fascinating, I hope you notice both Ruth and Boaz are demonstrating this very kind of Hesed-like behavior. Ruth does it by clinging. Boaz does it by redeeming. And in the story, if you go back and read it, you'll find that each of them actually has a counter character, one who is right alongside of them, maybe in their shadow, you could say, but they're actually making the point all the more of how Ruth and Boaz live out Hesed. The shadow character for Ruth is Orpah, who kisses her mother-in-law goodbye and then goes back home. Nothing wrong with that. She doesn't have to stay, but Ruth clings. Boaz has the shadow character of Mr. So-and-so, the other next of kin one who could redeem Ruth, but doesn't. He passes, which is okay. He's allowed to do that, but Boaz redeems. Ruth and Boaz end up being truly different characters. So if the first moral of the story for the book of Ruth is that God is in the business of welcoming outsiders in, even me, even you. If the second moral of the story is that 
it's good to tell this story because we duplicate what we celebrate. The third moral of the story, the book of Ruth, just might be that Hesed is truly heroic, even if it's unflashy. And then the story begins to turn towards closing. This is how it ends. It says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and she bore a son. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her, in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. She's the main character, really. And it's the happily ever after conclusion to the story. The women in particular, Ruth and Naomi, who have once lost everything, have now seemingly gained it all back. And then some. So one last pop quiz. Which other book in the Bible is most like this, the book of Ruth? Job. I see it right there. Job. In fact, you might even say that Job and Naomi are like doppelgangers. Both are good people who lose everything, seemingly without deserving it. And they cling to faith and faithfulness no matter what. Even what other people would be expecting them to curse God and die, they cling, they embody Hesed throughout their stories. And then it ends with family and riches restored beyond what was originally in place. Now, to be sure, they suffer loss. They suffer real loss. The story does not stay in scene number one. It progresses through from the once upon a time beginning into a tragedy, through a rescue, and into a new start beginning. If you look back or take a step back and look at the book of Ruth as a whole, you'll notice some really interesting patterns that are emerging. First, God is silent from start to finish. God doesn't say a word in this book. Maybe your life sometimes feels like that. Number two, nothing miraculous happens in the story. It's just the story of some people living faithfully, unfamously, unexcitingly in a small town of nowhere. Maybe your life feels a bit like that. Number three, God is active throughout the story, but only implicitly, only behind the scenes, perhaps noticed best in hindsight. Maybe your life feels a bit like that. And finally, Hesed is presented as the only best option, especially in hard times. Maybe that feels like your life too. The good news of the story, of course, is that the happily ever, ender, ever after ending for Ruth is also a happily ever ending for us and for the whole world as well. Why? Because the story ends by saying this. They named the baby that was born, they named him Obed. And he became the father of Jesse, the father of David, the bloodline of Jesus. And Jesus will most definitely go on to live into his family name. Like Naomi, Jesus will know what it's like to suffer hardship and even to feel as if God were distant and absent. Like Ruth, Jesus will be an outsider. He came to that which was his own and his own did not receive him. Like Boaz, Jesus will freely welcome the outsider in. 
for he was often in the habit of hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, he too will be born in Bethlehem. He too will have to flee his hometown. He too will suffer unjustly. He too will cling to faith and faithfulness. He too will sacrifice greatly to bring redemption no matter what the cost. And he too will go on to secure the world's best happily ever after. That, friends, is the story of everything. It's the story of Ruth. It's the story of me. It's the story of you. It's the story of Jesus. And the key act throughout is chesed, unfamous and unflinching, loyal love, steadfast mercy, covenantal kindness. It's the way of God to redeem the whole world. And it's the way of God's people in the world. So friends, go and live likewise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, in our response this morning, it is our prayer that we would be channels of that Hesed kind of love to a world that so desperately needs it. Would you stand and let's sing together?
mentioned earlier this morning, we have a chance to celebrate some of the ways in which we are active in our local schools and in our community. And this morning, we are going to talk a little bit about Kids Hope USA. If you don't know, Kids Hope is a mentorship program. It's kind of the power of one. One child, one mentor, one prayer partner for one hour for each week. Uh, It's a program that we do with Lakewood Elementary School right across the street, and it can also continue into uh, Mac Bay Middle School as uh, kids get a little bit older. We are going to commission uh, our mentors and our prayer partners this morning into this ministry as they uh, begin in in the next week or two, Um, and we have some official words that we say whenever we commission someone. Christ alone is the source of all Christian ministry throughout the ages, calling men and women to serve. By the Holy Spirit, all who believe and are baptized receive a ministry to Jesus as Savior and Lord. We are ambassadors for Christ who reconciles and makes all. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Thanks be to God. This, up here with me is Diana, our new Kids Hope director. Woo, woo! And she has been, it's been a joy uh, to be working with her. Uh, and she uh, has some words for us this morning as well. Sure. So as I speak, maybe we can ask our mentors and prayer partners to come up because we will be praying over you. But uh, for the last few months, uh, I have had the pleasure to start working once again with Stacy Hoy um, in a different capacity. We used to, I still work in the front area, but uh, Stacy used to work there too but as uh, co-local missions coordinators. And we've been able to look um, and get to know uh, West Ottawa District principals, uh, staff, from the custodians to the security, uh, to the teachers. And it has been a lovely experience, and we hope that it continues to grow our um, friendship here with Fellowship and uh, Lakewood Elementary and Mac Bay Middle School. Um, but that being said, I don't know if you guys have seen the last few weeks, uh, the email, the Friday emails we've been requesting and telling you for the need of mentors, and the number has increased. And that is because there is a huge need, uh, not only with regards to mentors, but you have seen uh, a third of uh, students, has, uh, we have a, a third increase in the number of students for the food. Um, which we will be packing later on. And even with our mission partners, Community Action House has also shown that they have a 30% increase as well. So there is a huge need in the community. And the way that we, Fellowship, can help in the community and like right immediately is by having people mentor, partner up with the students here at Lakewood that then go into Mac Bay Middle School. So we will chart, do the charge or the commissioning and sorry, I'm a little nervous. You're doing great, <laughs> Diana. You're crushing this, you know? All right. So what's next? So these are our mentors and prayer partners. Let's give God thanks for them and for their willingness to serve. There's a few others on the wall. We have uh, another number of pictures on the screen. Not everybody's going to be at both services. Um, but it is a crew of almost 50 people that are going to serve as mentors. Uh, and so we have, uh, Diane's going to ask these mentors a question, and then they will respond with, we will, I believe. Though it'll, be, uh, it'll be on the screen, basically, yeah. for them to say. So, Diana, why don't you lead them in this literature? All right. Yeah. So, having offered yourselves in the ministry of Kids Hope USA, 
Will you be the arms, hands, eyes, ears, and mouth of Jesus to the children of Lakewood Elementary and Makatawa Bay Middle School, offering love, encouragement, and support in Jesus' name? We recognize that this ministry is not just about the, the mentors and prayer partners, but it's a, a full congregation thing. So would you guys stand up and join me in making a promise to these folks uh, and to Christ in this ministry that we get to do together? Let's join our voices. We promise, promise to, give to give you, you our, our prayers, prayers support, support, and encouragement as, as you seek to be the arms, hands, eyes, ears, and mouths of Jesus. Jesus. To the, to the children, children of Lakewood, Lakewood Elementary School and, and Mount Bay, Bay Middle, School. Middle School. We will, we will encourage you and seek ways to joyfully support this ministry in Jesus' name. Diana, will you pray for us? I sure will. It'll be my pleasure. Padre, Hijo, y Espíritu Santo, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we just want to give you thanks for the opportunity to be the arms hands, eyes, ears, mouth, and feet uh, to the children at Lakewood Elementary and Makatawa Middle, Bay, uh, uh, Middle School. We just, uh, we're so thankful, Lord, that um, you allow us to be, to partner with you. And uh, we ask you, Lord, for your empowerment over our mentors and prayer partners. We ask you to forge a friendship uh, a bond between them and that you, Christ Jesus, be the center of it all, Lord. We pray that you encourage and give uh, shower the mentors with knowledge, with wisdom, with discernment as they meet week after week with their student, that they, that your light, Lord Jesus, may shine through them. Um, and that each encounter every week may uh, be met with your love and grace. Lord, we pray for all of the faculty and staff at the schools, um, and we pray that your loving kindness, your hesed, be among us all. Give us your uh, favor upon each and every one. And it's in your blessed name and your precious and holy name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's join our voices in song. The mentors and prayer partners can be seated. Thank you.
Friends, in a world that is so often shaking, the story of Ruth is inspiring. It's unfamous, sometimes unexciting, and yet unflinching acts of faith and faithfulness. It is to live in the shadow of Hesed, God's Hesed for us. So as you go from this place to live that out in your life world, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. Go in peace.